I'd like to welcome each of you to the service tonight. Say we appreciate your presence, especially if you are visiting with this congregation tonight. We welcome you. We thank you for being here. I encourage you uh, to come back and to worship here at any opportunity that you have. We are excited once again to be able to open up God's Word together and study a portion of His teaching toward us. And hopefully the things that we talk about tonight will be things that are beneficial to us, regardless of the state that we may find ourselves in tonight. You may be sitting in the pew tonight and you may have been a, a long-time Christian, but perhaps still have struggles and still have things that you're dealing with in your life that cause you to stumble and cause you to do things that you know aren't right. You may be here in this building tonight and you may be a newer Christian and maybe you're seeking to change your life and to, to carry out that repentance that we know is so important, but that is very difficult to turn around a life that used to be focused on self and sin and change that to be focused on Christ. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here because you're interested in the, what the Word of God says. Maybe you're here because you're interested in the life of a Christian. You're interested in the eternal gift of heaven and the eternal gift provided by Jesus Christ on the cross. And tonight we want to talk about things that I think pertain to all of us in one way or another because all of us are broken people. All of us are sinners before God. All of us have struggles, and even those of us who have been in the church for a long time can still struggle with sin. And so I think all of us need to recognize that we have sin, we have struggles, and it's a constant battle to overcome that sin in our life. And I want to talk tonight about overcoming sin by walking a new path each and every day. There's a scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, where Peter says this, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now we are called to live a holy life, a holy existence. And this is a very, very high calling. There's a couple of different ways that the scripture talks about this holiness. One way is it illustrates the holiness that we are given through Jesus Christ. And we recognize that we are all sinners, but Christ is the only one that lived the perfect life. And it is through His sacrifice on the cross and His perfection and His holiness that we are made holy before God. And it's certainly nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves righteous or holy before God. However, once we have been made holy through Christ and been given that gift of salvation, what we are called to is a life pursuing after holiness. A life that seeks to apply the holiness of God in our life and in our decisions. As the scripture says, be ye holy for I am holy. And so really what God is calling us to do is to try every day to model our life after His holiness and His perfection. There's a proverb in chapter 4 verses 26 and 27 that puts it this way. Ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. And tonight I want to talk about this idea of a path. Of what path that we have been walking in life and what path God is calling us to walk. And we are the determiners of the path that we walk. We have laid before us many choices in how to live our life. Many choices. God has given us that free will to choose. And it's up to us to ponder the path that we're on and consider how that we can stay on the straight and narrow, not turning to the left, not turning to the right, and keeping our feet away from evil. And so that's what we want to, do, to discuss in this teaching this evening. I want to introduce this, this concept with a story here in Proverbs chapter 7 that we find. About, it illustrates the importance of walking intentionally. Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 6 says, For at the window of my house I looked through my casement, 
And behold, among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner. And he went the way to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. Now I want us to notice something right off the bat here in this story. We have this writer who says he's looking out of his window and he sees a young man that's void of understanding. And he says he went the way to her house. This young man chose a particular path to walk that night. And that path that he chose took him right by this house where he met a woman with the attire of a harlot. And we read in verse 13, it says, So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the good man is not at home, he has gone a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. And so I want us to recognize here from the viewpoint of this writer who says, I'm looking out of my window and I see this young man who he, he's void of understanding. He doesn't have common sense. He doesn't recognize what's happening. And he chooses a particular path to walk. And he finds himself there at this corner with this house, with this woman dressed like a harlot. And she begins to tempt him with her words and her actions to come in and to commit sin with her. And what does he do? Verse 21, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Till a dart strike through his liver as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Now what I want us to do with this story is we introduce this idea of overcoming sin by walking a new path is to recognize that that young man would never have been in the situation of being tempted in that way had he chosen a different path to walk that night. He chose, whether through ignorance or lack of understanding or whatever it was, he chose to put himself in temptation's path. And once he was there, it was difficult to get out of it. He was tempted. He fell to that temptation. And the scripture says he went after her straightway as an ox goes to the slaughter. He, and he never even realized that it was for his very life. And he was going to be destroyed by the sin and the actions that he was going to take that night. You know, this is what sin does to us. And this is how temptation works with us. Many times, whether it's because we're unintentional or we're not thinking about it or, or we haven't studied or we haven't prepared ourselves, there's a lot of reasons for it, but we put ourselves right in the path of temptation. And then we wonder why we constantly fail. We wonder why we continue to struggle against sin and not ever seem to be able to turn that corner of repentance that we want to. And we ask ourselves, why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? Other people seem to have it all together. Why can't I get my life together? Well, first of all, we need to recognize once again that not everybody has their life together, that it's a continual process that all of us are working on through our life, but that there are strategies and tools that we can use to help us to overcome the sin that can befall us in this life. And we want to talk about that tonight. So I'm asking you tonight, what path are you on? What path are you walking today? There's the path of unintentionality and poor judgment. And that may be a path that you're walking tonight. There's an example of this type of path in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 7. Now if you remember the history here, we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. That was that, that special item that held the Ten Commandments and other items and that walked before the children of Israel into battle and such things. Well, at one point it was captured by the Philistines. And then it was recovered and it was placed at the house of a man named Abinadab. And it stayed there for about 20 years. 
And now David is king and David decides that he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And so they go and they are going to take this cart from Abinadab's house. It says they carried the Ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might and with singing and with harps and with psalteries and with timbrels and with cymbals and with trumpets. And when they came into the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark. And there he died before God. Now, if you back up, and I didn't put the scriptures up here. Uh, Let me see. All right, I've switched the mute button. Is that better? All right. And all Israel played before God with all their might. They were all happy about what was going on. They believed in what they were doing. Nobody thought that there was a problem here. But then suddenly as they put this cart or put this ark on the cart and they were pulling it with oxen and the oxen stumbled, the ark began to tip over and Uzzah reached out. He put his hand on the ark to catch it. And what happened? God struck him dead. David was confused by this. He didn't know why God had made what he called a breach upon them. Didn't understand why he had struck Uzzah down. And he had to go search the law and ask the questions and figure out what went wrong. You know what he figured out? said, for because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. You see, David had a great idea of bringing the ark. Everybody thought it was a good idea. Everybody was singing and praising God and all of that. And it was a great time until Uzzah died. And what David figured out was there was a specific way that God had instructed them to carry the ark of the covenant. And it was not on a cart. The priests, the tribe of Levi was supposed to carry that. There were rings in that Ark of the Covenant and there were poles that four men were supposed to carry on their shoulders. And it wasn't supposed to be on a card. And not only that, you were never supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And yet Uzzah did and he was struck down. And David realized that unintentionally he had caused a problem before God because he had not sought God first. And you know, you may be in that situation tonight where you may be doing certain things without even realizing it because you're being unintentional. Because you're not spending time in God's word. You're not reading and studying to learn the precepts of God. To know how to apply them in your life. And so maybe without knowledge or experience, you're committing sin. And committing judgment calls that are unwise. Simply because you made the same mistake that David did here. Or maybe you're on the path of casual sin tonight. This I'd like to use Luke 15 for as an example of. Casual sin is that idea of justifying the little sins, the little decisions. Because they're not that big of a deal. They're just small things. In Luke 15 verse 11, we have the story here of the prodigal son. It says, he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. 
And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. And we know the rest of the story. The prodigal son realizes the depths of, of problems that he has caused for himself. And he goes back to his father and his father is waiting with open arms with forgiveness and kills the fatted calf for him. And it's a great story. But I want us to recognize a couple of things that I think that can give us an indication of the bad decisions that this young man was making. This young man had an inheritance that was coming to him, but he asked for it ahead of time. He showed a lack of patience, a lack of being able to wait to the proper time. And because of that, his father gave it to him. He took that and he wasted it. But first, before he wasted it, he took a journey into a foreign country, into a foreign land, away from mom and dad, away from his family, away from any accountability. He made the decision to go there and then made the decision to waste all of that money, that inheritance with riotous living, with the party lifestyle. Until finally he was destitute. There was a famine. And in order to live and survive, he had to go join himself to a citizen. He had to go work for somebody to feed the pigs. And was so hungry and so destitute that he wanted to eat the food that the pigs were eating. And that's how low his life had gotten. Because of a few casual decisions. It's not a big deal. It's my inheritance anyway. I'll take it a little early. Well, I'm independent. I can go off into a country far away from mom and dad. That's not a problem. I'm plenty mature enough to handle that. A little partying never hurt anybody, right? Throw a few dollars here and there. Have a little fun. It all came back to Biden. A series of casual decisions that seemed like they weren't a big deal, but he justified them. And it became a very big deal. And sometimes we tend to do that in our life. We look at the little decisions, whether they be the little white lies those little small things that we justify and we think it's not going to hurt anybody or nobody even knows about it. So why am I worried about it? And yet those are the very things sometimes that can cause big problems. Song of Solomon 2 verse 15 says, take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines for our vines have tender grapes. Solomon here talks about the little animal, the little fox that can get into a vineyard and can tear the entire thing up. And sometimes it's those little, small problems that can cause big, destructive effects in our life. But maybe tonight it's not the path of poor judgment or unintentionality. Maybe it's not the path of those justifying those little sins that you're on. Maybe you're here tonight and you recognize that you're stuck in some pretty bad sin. That you're stuck in some bad habits. That you know you need to get out of. And maybe you've tried time and time again and haven't been able to break them. You know, I think from time to time, all of us can fall into some of these things. We see an example of this in the, in the character of Judas in the scriptures. In John chapter 12, 3 through 6, it says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now recognize that John, as he's writing, he's writing many years later. And so he's looking back and he's adding in these things about Judas being the one who's going to betray. And Judas was a thief and all this, because obviously in hindsight, they knew those things. At the time, they obviously didn't. But Judas was the guy that kept the money for the group. As those apostles were following Jesus around, those disciples were following him, Judas was the guy with the money bag. And the scripture says that he used to help himself to what was in there. He would steal money from the group, from Jesus's group, because of greed. And here we have Mary trying to do something very, very good for the Savior and anoint his feet with oil and serve him in this way. 
And Judas, not because he cared about the poor, asks, why don't we sell this expensive ointment and, and get some money for the poor? Meanwhile, so it can go in the bag that he's holding and he can have more to steal from. And it's all about greed. And we see this, we recognize that Judas had this problem, apparently through most, if not all, of the ministry of Christ. And what did that problem of greed lead Judas to? Matthew 26, 15. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. You see, it was this same problem, this habitual sin of greed that led Judas to do the ultimate of sins, which was to betray the Son of God for money. It wasn't just random. He didn't just all of a sudden decide to betray him for money. He had a problem, a habitual sin problem that led him down this very dark road. And you may be here tonight and you may be struggling with a dark sin problem. Maybe nobody around you knows about it. Maybe no one has, has caught it or discovered it yet. You're the only one that knows about it. Or maybe you have struggled and you've been seeking help and you've been getting counsel, but you're still dealing with it and still struggling with it. We can find ourselves in these situations. What I want to encourage you to do is not do what Judas did, where he continued to sin and continued to, to fall into that darkness and then eventually gave up his own life and gave up. But I want to encourage you instead to choose today that we're going to get off of that path of habitual sin. And we're going to do what it takes to do that. You see, when we get involved in these dark sins and these habitual sins, we become a slave to them. 2 Peter 2 verse 19 says, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Have you ever felt that way? About any particular struggle or sin issue that you've had? That you feel like you're a slave to it? That you try and you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm not going to fall again. I'm not going to commit this sin again. I'm done. And then by the end of the day or the next day or the week or whatever the case may be, you've fallen right back into that same sin again. And you hate yourself for that. You hate that feeling of guilt and betrayal and failure. And so once again, you pray prayers of forgiveness and you commit to God that you're going to change and you're going to be different. And then by the week's end again, you've fallen into that same trap again. I hope tonight that if that's a situation that you find yourself in, that you'll recognize through the course of this study tonight that there's hope. That there are things that you can do to get yourself past these problems and to work to make yourself right each day before the Lord. I want you to know that God has called us to overcome that. He's not okay with us continuing willingly that life of sin. He wants for us to struggle against it. He wants for us to work as hard as we can to overcome it. Romans 6 verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. God's call to us is to do whatever it takes to repent of that sin and to yield ourselves unto God, to submit to Him. But how can we do that effectively when we're in the throes of habitual sin or of casual sin that we're justifying or even if we're walking that path of unintentionality and poor judgment and find ourselves in negative situations? Well, first of all, we have to choose to avoid the sinful paths that we've taken before. So I'm going to give you a few practical things that I think can help us to avoid those issues that we've had in the past. And number one, I want to encourage you to burn bridges to your sinful past. 
What do I mean by this? I mean do exactly what the Christians did in Acts chapter 19 verses 18 and 19. It says, Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now these Christians in Acts chapter 19 were new converts. They had just come to Christ. And in coming to Christ, they had learned that the life of sorcery that they had been involved in before was sinful and it was wrong. And they had books containing that witchcraft and that sorcery that they had used. And they brought all of those books before the people and they piled them in a big pile and they set them on fire. And these books were worth a lot of money. But I want us to recognize here that these Christians did not leave those books on the bookshelf. They didn't say, hey, we'll try this Christianity thing out for a while and if it doesn't work, we can always go back to what we were doing. They said, no, we're going to be all in. If we're going to do this Christianity thing, if we're going to follow Christ, then we're going to do it all the way. And we're going to burn the bridges to the past. We can't go back to that. I wonder if you're familiar with the story of Hernan Cortez. Cortez was a Spanish conquistador who in 1519 arrived in the new world, attempting to accomplish what no conquistador before him had been able to do, to conquer the Aztec empire and take their gold and wealth back to the mainland Spain. He arrived on the shore with 600 men and 11 ships. And in order to motivate his 600 men who were far outnumbered by the Aztecs and ensure they had the best chance of success in their mission, Cortez issued three famous words. He said, burn the ships. And you know his 600 men, his soldiers had to listen to that and go, wait a second, hold on, I misheard you. What was that? Our only way back home? Surely you didn't say burn them. That's our only way back if we get beaten. That's our escape route. And he said, burn the ships. Now that's dedication. That's saying we're not going back home. We're either going to succeed in our mission or we're going to die trying. You know, as Christians, we have to be willing to take on that level of dedication to say we're either going to succeed in this Christianity thing or we're going to die trying. We're going to live for Christ or we're going to die for him. But one way or another, we're not going back. We're burning the bridges to the past. What does that mean in practicality? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Some of those bridges to your past sinful life may include people that you have relationships with. They may be family members. They may be friends of yours. They may be people who once you felt close to, but now that you've started your walk with Christ and are seeking to fill your life with righteousness, you realize that there is a big difference between the lifestyle you're seeking to lead and the lifestyle that they are. And sometimes a Christian finds themselves in spending time with that person that they used to be close to, that that person can have a negative influence on them and can pull them right back into some of those negative activities that they were involved with before. And I believe that we need to recognize as Christians that there may be situations where we need to cut off a relationship. Now I know some people will say, yes, but how can we ever ever, uh, try to convert somebody, right? If we're not willing to go spend time with them. And that's a whole nother issue. But I'll say this to you. If you're at the point where you're in the throes of sinful life, you need to be worrying about getting your own life in order. Not worrying about getting theirs. Now, there is never going to be a situation where we come to and we're, we're perfect. That's not what I'm saying. But if we're struggling with sin, we don't need to be thinking in terms of justifying our actions by, well, we want to be able to testify to them. We need to recognize that it's a problem for us. 
And we need to recognize that they may be coming between us and God. And that it is not worth our soul to keep a relationship with somebody that's going to be bad for us spiritually. And so there may be people in your life that you need to be willing to cut off. Jesus talked about this concept in Matthew 18 and verse 8. He said, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. The reality is, it is not worth our eternal soul. These relationships are these people in our life. And Jesus said we must be willing to cut off even our own hand, pluck out even our own eye, cut off even our own foot if those things are causing us to offend against God. Basically what Jesus is telling us is that we need to be dedicated. Dedicated enough to do whatever it takes to not turn back to sin. So number one in how to avoid those sinful paths in the future is to burn the bridges to the past and quit going back to those same places and those same people that caused you to sin before. And if you're willing to do that and you're willing to cut those things off, it will help you in your battle against sin in the future. Number two, don't make it easy to sin. Romans chapter 13, 13 says, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. There are many places that we can go that are unwise. There may be a situation where a person is trying to recover from alcoholism. You know the last place an alcoholic needs to be? is somewhere where there's alcohol. Because if an alcoholic goes and puts himself in a place where there's alcohol, he's putting himself right in front of the temptation. He's making it easy to turn back to sin. If somebody who struggles with pornography goes off by themselves and has a computer or electronic device or something in a private place by themselves, they're asking for the temptation to strike to turn back to that pornography. And apply that to whatever particular sin issue may come to your mind or be prominent in your life. But recognize that there are situations we can put ourselves in that make it really easy for Satan to tempt us. And if we do that, then it's no wonder we continue to struggle. And so not only should we burn bridges to the past and cut off relationships that may be negative to our spiritual life, but we need to be willing to avoid places and to control situations so that we don't make it easy for Satan to tempt us into sinning. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. What does circumspectly mean? It means to walk and look all the way around you to pay attention to what you're doing. Pay attention to where you're going. Pay attention to the decisions you're making and where those decisions will lead. We started out with Proverbs 7 and that young man who was void of understanding who went the way to her house. He put himself right there in temptation's path. And we do that all too often because we're unwilling to sacrifice certain things in our life whether that be people or places that we like to go or activities we like to be involved in. And as a Christian, if we're really going to be dedicated and we're going to say burn the ships, we're going to say we're going to live for Christ or die for Christ, but we're not going back, then we've got to be willing to keep ourselves from those situations that make it easy. Number three, we need to be willing to run from temptation when it strikes. 
1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. But will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. You know, some people read this verse, and they say, Well, God's not going to allow us to be tempted above that we're, handle, we're able to handle. So we're going to straddle that line, right? We're going to get up right as close to that line as possible. And we're going to flirt with that temptation, because God's not going to let us be tempted above that we're able. And he's promised that there's a way of escape. And so we flirt around with the danger and the sin and the temptation and then we wonder why we fall. You know, maybe that way of escape was there in the beginning when the temptation first surfaced, when it first arrived. It's kind of like we mentioned the other night with thoughts. We can't keep a thought from popping into our mind, but we can keep it from staying there and allowing ourselves to dwell on it. There are situations we're going to come into where we're tempted to sin and we feel that pull that physical pull, that desire, whatever it is. And it is right then, in the first instance, that we feel that temptation that we need to turn around and run the other direction. There's a story in Genesis chapter 39 you're probably familiar with where somebody did exactly this. This is the story of Joseph. Joseph was serving as a slave in the house of Potiphar in Egypt after, as you recall, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph. And day after day, she tempted and sought to find a way to tempt Joseph to commit sin with her. And he refused. But one particular day, says it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business. And there was none of the men of the house that were within. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Now she took an opportunity here where there were no people, there were no other men in the house, and she took that opportunity to tempt him. Would have been real easy for him to give in. There were no witnesses, there were no people around. Could have given in to that and had a good time. But he was faithful to God and he didn't want to commit sin against God. And he did the only thing that he could do in that situation. At that point, there was no burning the bridges. At that point, there was no not making it easy to sin. It was what it was. The temptation was right in front of him. He had a choice to make. And the choice that he made was to turn around and literally run. And I want to encourage you, whether it be literal or not, to run, to change the situation. As soon as you feel that temptation or that temptation has come upon you, there are certain things that you can do. You can either leave a place Leave a, a particular group of people as you may feel that temptation happen. You could leave a room. You can call somebody, a church person, and say, hey, I just need to talk. You don't even have to tell them what's going on. But talking to a church person is one of the ways to kill a, a temptation to sin pretty quick. Because they're holding you accountable and they have a shared faith with you. And so call them and talk to them about spiritual things. Pray to God. Sit down and start reading the Bible. It's hard to commit sin when you're reading the Bible. There are some things that we can do in that moment that literally is like what Joseph did here. And it's, it's turning and it's running from the temptation. It's saying, I will not be a part of this. And I'm going to be spiritual and I'm going to be faithful. So I want to encourage you tonight, when you find yourself in those moments of temptation, immediately, before you allow it to fester, before you allow your thoughts to dwell on it, right then and right there, take the avenue of escape. God has promised a way of escape, but it might be that that escape hatch is right there at the very beginning. And if you don't take it then, then you'll get too far deep in and it'll be hard to turn back. Number four, I want to encourage you to use spiritual accountability if you want to avoid those sinful paths. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is one of the hardest things to carry out. I believe 
Because all of us to some degree or another, I think are filled with a little bit of, of whether it be pride or it be fear of judgment or condemnation or whatever that is. But it's a scary thought to have to go to another church person and say, this is something that I've done wrong. This is something that I've been struggling with. But you know, this is exactly what the scripture encourages us to do. It's to confess our faults one to another. And so first of all, to the congregation, I'd like to say, let us all please encourage an atmosphere that understands that we're broken people, that we are people who struggle, that we are not a group of perfect people. And if somebody has a sin problem, suddenly they're, they're the one person in a group of 400 perfect people that has a sin problem. That's just not the case. All of us struggle with these things. And if we'll recognize and create an atmosphere that says, all of us struggle, let's work together to get past the struggle, let's work together to get through it, then we can help each other and we can help each other be more comfortable in coming to one another and saying, hey, I'm struggling struggling here and I need some help. And that's exactly what James is encouraging us to do. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now notice there's kind of both sides of the issue here that Paul talks about. There's a side of considering yourself you need to evaluate a situation when you know somebody that's struggling in sin. You need to evaluate and make sure you don't have the wrong motivations. Make sure you're not going to put yourself in a situation that makes it easy for you to sin. But still the responsibility for those spiritual people is to seek to restore the brother or the sister that's struggling. To seek to help them. Whether they have confessed that fault to us or not, if we love them and care about them and see them participating in these destructive activities, we need to be willing to go and speak truth to them as we talked about yesterday. And we have a very practical example here of Paul and Peter that Paul tells about in Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now you remember in the New Testament, there was a struggle there with Jews and Gentiles and the Jewish people not really being happy about the Gentiles being allowed into the kingdom and all that. There was a problem. Well, Peter even got caught up in this issue. And while there were no Jews around, Peter was sitting and he was eating with the Gentiles, as he should have been. For all people, Jews and Gentile alike, had been accepted into the kingdom of God. But then when some Jews showed up, what did Peter do? Oh, well, I, I, I wasn't eating with them. And he scooted away so that he wouldn't be associated with the Gentiles. It was improper. It was wrong. And Paul said, I withstood him to the face. I stood up to Peter and I said, you're wrong. You don't need to do that because Peter was to be blamed. Peter was in the wrong. And even Peter, who was an elder of the church, who preached that first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2 where 3,000 souls were saved, even Peter struggled with sin and struggled with things, what was right and what was wrong. But he had a brother in Paul who was willing to stand up to him and say, look, you're wrong in this. And you need to change the, what you're doing. You need to change your actions. And so I want to encourage us to use spiritual accountability with each other. And I want to look at some guidelines here. And these are just suggestions for you as we consider this idea of being accountable to one another. Guidelines for using accountability wisely. I want to encourage you to use wisdom in choosing an accountability partner. Not everyone necessarily needs to be the person that is your accountability partner. You know in Galatians 6 that we read, Paul said, Ye that are spiritual, restore such a one. And there are going to be spiritually mature people that are good to have in your corner as accountability partners. And there are going to be spiritually weak people that are not the best accountability partners because they may just fall right into the struggle with you. 
And so use wisdom, but find a brother or sister or a group of people, your elders in the congregation, whoever it may be, that you say, look, I, I want some help and I'd like you to hold me accountable. And what does that accountability mean? It means we're going to discuss openly between us the struggles and the sins and the things that I've been dealing with. And I'm going to ask you to help me, whether that be through studying with me, praying with me, giving me strategies and tools to use to get past this, but I'd like some help. And that takes a real level of spiritual strength and maturity to be willing to humble ourselves and say, I need some help. And that I think God will bless and honor when we do that. But not only do I encourage you to, to use wisdom when choosing your accountability partner, but be honest and humble about your faults and temptations. It does no good to say, hey, I want you to hold me accountable and then not really be honest about what you're struggling with. They can't help you if you're not honest about it. Study, converse, and pray with each other often. Accountability partners should take it seriously. And they should study those issues together. They should pray with one another. They should talk often and ask, how's it been going? What have you been dealing with? Have you faced the struggle? What did you do? Did you fail? What can we do to change that next time? And all of that stuff is a part of this accountability process. Be faithful in keeping private conversations private. And this goes to you whether you are the person seeking help or you are the person giving help. Those conversations between accountability partners need to be kept secret and private. Not because we're trying to just keep things secret, but because it's not everybody's business, the struggles and the sins that we're dealing with. But we have chosen spiritually wise people to confide in and ask for help in. And so especially if you are on the receiving end of that and you are working with somebody to try to help them overcome sin, be diligent and, and faithful to them about keeping those things private unless they ask you to do something a different way. Be diligent to follow through with the spiritual guidance that you're given. If you're seeking help and your accountability partner, whoever that may be, says, look, here's some things you need to do. And if you'll do these things, it will help you in your struggle against sin. And if you say, okay, I'll do that and then never do, you'll probably continue to struggle. But only if we're willing and dedicated to actually put those tools and strategies into practice will it actually help us. And so as we've considered this idea of avoiding sinful paths by burning the bridges to the past, by not making it easy to sin, by running from temptation when it appears, and by using the tool of spiritual accountability that we have in the church, I want to talk to you for the next couple of minutes this evening about how to choose a new path to walk. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 says that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I want us to recognize here that Paul is telling the Ephesian church that there is a process here of repentance and of overcoming sin that involves putting off certain things and putting on other things. And if we don't fulfill both of those requirements then we're likely to go right back into the sin. It's real easy to say alright here's all the things I'm going to do to tackle the sin. And I'm going to study about it. And I'm going to pray about it. And I'm going to use spiritual accountability. I'm not going to make it easy to sin. I'm not going to go associate with that person that always causes me to, to, to be brought down in sin. I'm going to do all those things. I'm going to be okay. But then we don't fill our life up with the righteous things, with the good things. It's like that story Jesus tells about the man that had the spirits gone from him 
but he never put anything else inside him. And so they came back and they were stronger than ever. And that's exactly what will happen to us with our sin if we're not diligent about taking the next step in that process, not only avoiding those things that can cause us to sin, but filling our life up with those good things, those righteous and holy things. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What we've been talking about for the last several minutes here are ways that we can not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? And practical steps that hopefully can help us to avoid those things. But part of this is that we have to walk in the Spirit. We can't just not walk in the flesh. We have to walk in the Spirit. And if we are walking in the Spirit, it will be much easier to not fulfill those lusts of the flesh. So how can we do that? What new paths can we start walking today? And I want to give you a formula here that's not, it's, it's not a very, it's not a new formula. It's not anything grand. It's going to be stuff that you've heard over and over again. But the simplicity of this formula is its, its greatest weapon and greatest result. It's simple. It's fairly easy to implement if we'll have the courage to do it. And when we do it, it will help us to fill our life with righteous things, making it much more difficult to continue in that life of sin. I want to encourage you to make study of the scriptures a priority in your life. You say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We hear that from everybody who gets up in the pulpit and preaches. We should study the Bible more. Heard that. Tried that. Done that. Well, reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures is not something we try for a while and it didn't work. It's something that we need to be dedicated to every day of our life. Because no matter how long you've been in the church, no matter how much scripture you've read, you can always learn something. You can always find something in it that will help you. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I want to give you a few things that I think hopefully can help you in developing strong study habits. And these are things for you to consider if you walk away tonight and say, I do need to study the scriptures more. Here are some things I want to encourage you to do. Start small. Many people say, I'm going to study the Bible more and I'm going to start on this, read the Bible in a year plan. And they get a few weeks in or a month in or whatever it is, they fall off. That's a big goal. It'd be great to read the whole Bible. I would encourage you to do that, but that's a big goal. And if you're not used to studying scripture, you don't need to set that big of a goal right off the bat for yourself because it's going to be hard to reach. Set a small goal. Pick one book and say, I want to read through this book. I'm going to read one chapter a day. And maybe in, depending on the book, maybe in six days, maybe in 15 days, maybe in 30 days, whatever it is, but I'm going to have that book read. Start with a smaller goal. Say a prayer, whether that be before or after your study. Say a prayer, and, and not really anything specific. I mean, I could give you some suggestions of some things to pray for and wisdom as you're seeking God's word and, and all those things, but really it's more about just putting yourself in the spiritual mindset, communicating with God, recognizing that what you're doing is seeking to learn the will of God through your study. And a prayer can help you to set that tone spiritually and mentally in your mind. Take notes. Have a notepad or your computer or tablet or whatever it is and take some notes. Write down anything that stands out or mark the things that you don't understand. Especially if you're new to studying the scripture, you're going to come across some things that, you, that are hard to understand and you're going to have questions about. Don't just pass over them and, and don't give them a second thought. Mark them. Write them down. Ask your questions to someone. 
Use reading aids. There may be situations, we need to be careful about this because we recognize that the reading aids were just created by man and they don't take the place of scripture and all that. And I'm absolutely not saying to do that. But there are some aids that you can use that can help you. There are Bible maps that can help you get geography in your head when you're reading through stuff. They'll help you understand better. There's uh, commentaries and dictionaries and things that can give you a little bit of perspective as long as you remember that it's man's perspective and it doesn't trump the scripture. But those things can help to clarify some things as you're reading through. And then implementation. When you sit down each day and you study and you've said your prayer and you have your notepad and you're ready to take some notes. As a part of what you write down, I encourage you to find one thing. Pick one thing in that chapter that you've read. One thing that stands out to you that's interesting to you that you can choose to try to implement in your life. Some principle that you can take and say, I'm gonna try to do this and carry this out today. And then discussion. Talk to your elders, your friends, your fellow church members about what you've been reading. And ask those questions that you have. Your elders are a great source of spiritual wisdom that you can go to and say, hey, I've been reading through this book. I had a question about this. I don't know what Paul was talking about. I don't understand it. Can you help me? And that humility of attitude when it comes to God's word will help us to be good studiers. And if we'll do this and we'll do this consistently, what we will find is that our life will begin to change. We will not be thinking physically nearly as much because every day we will be spending time in the spiritual word of God and that will make an impact in our life. I wanna encourage you to make worship a priority. John 4 verse 23 says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. We've talked a little bit about this this week already, but you need to be present and involved and engaged in what the church is doing. You need to be worshiping with the church. You will be spiritually stronger if you are here and engaged with your congregation than you will if you're not. It's a lot harder to walk this Christian journey alone and I would encourage you not to try. Rely on your Christian brothers and sisters and get together in worship and in fellowship with them. Leads me to the next point. Make fellowship a priority. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 says, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. These 3,000 souls in Acts chapter 2 that obeyed the gospel, these new Christians, this new church that had just begun, They were daily with each other, spending time together, eating together, studying together, learning together, having fun together. And we recognize, of course, that there are jobs and there are things that we do every day and it may not be possible for us to be all together every day and I'm not saying that. But if we are intentional about making fellowship a priority of saying, I need to be around my brothers and sisters and I'm gonna invite them in my home and I'm gonna use hospitality to bring them in so that we can have that time one-on-one to visit with one another. And I'm going to be at the assembly and I'm going to be at the church events and the functions and the Bible studies and all the things that I can be involved in because being around my Christian family is going to help me. And I think I've said it this week already, but the more time that we're around Christian people, the less time there's going to be for us to fall into those traps of temptation and sin. I want to encourage you to remove hindrances to fellowship. There are some things that get in the way of our fellowship at times. One of those is that it takes work. It takes work, planning, time, and effort to be involved, and it's just plain easier not to do. It's easier to just live our life, go to work, spend time with our family, and just not plan and prepare and take the time to fellowship with each other. But I want to encourage you to remove that hindrance, and don't don't let the fact that it takes work stop you. Sometimes we get in our comfort zone. 
We find people or life habits that we like, we tend to stick with them. And we see this sometimes at church and congregations where you'll have certain people that they only visit with those same certain people that are around them or their family members or their closest friends. And there's nothing wrong with having good relationships with your family or your friends or certain people at church. But I want to encourage you to think outside of that group too. Think about the congregation as a whole. Think about getting to know your fellow church members that you don't know as well. Getting to know somebody in a different age bracket than you. There's, there can be a lot of wisdom, especially for young people in spending time with older Christians that have been in the church a lot longer. And I want to encourage you to do that and seek out each other to spend time. Get out of your comfort zone if that's a situation you're in. Sometimes there's personality conflicts that get in the way. There's some people that we just don't jive with as well because of personality differences or whatever that is. Sometimes we've got introverts and extroverts and the introverts don't really like to, to socialize nearly as much as the extroverts or they may be intimidated by the extroverts or feel like the extroverts walk on top of them. And all of those are valid things. But I want to encourage you, regardless of what personality you type have, you have, whether you're introverted or extroverted, that you take special care in seeking to be with each other, to listen to one another, to spend time really getting to know one another. And don't let your personality get in the way. Don't let busyness get in the way. Now we may have a little bit, have had a little bit more time on our hands over this, this past year with a lot of activities and things that weren't going on nearly as much, but our lives can get in the way of this fellowship when it comes to work and kids and hobbies and all of those other things that we have going on. Sometimes we just don't have time. And if we don't have time for the spiritual things, then we're misprioritizing our life. And we need to cut out some of the other things to make sure that we have time for fellowship. And there's a lack of resources that sometimes get, gets in the way for people. A lot of times these fellowship events and opportunities, it costs money, it costs time, uh, food that you're having to share, whatever the case may be. And, and for some that's hard and, and understand that and recognize that. But all of us can contribute something and there's a way to spend time with each other that doesn't cost money. And you can go spend time with somebody at the park one afternoon and, and spend some hours together and let the kids play together and it won't cost you a dime, except maybe the gas to get there. There's things you can do. Go meet somebody for coffee instead of a full meal. And it's a much cheaper way to do that, but you'll still get to spend some time with them and visit with them. So don't let the, the resources or the cost get in the way. There's a lot of excuses we can make to not spend time with one another. But the more time that we're spending with one another, the less time Satan will be able to get to us. Make good works a priority. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself of peculiar people, zealous of good works. I want to tell you about a story, something that happened to me several years ago. I was driving up from Harlingen to Houston to visit my family. And I was driving an old uh, junker of a car. I loved that car, but it was an old junker of a car. And I got about an hour south of where I was supposed to be. And all of a sudden it goes, and it dies. And I'm coasting on the highway. And I thought, oh no, well, thankfully there's an exit right there. And so I'm pulling off and I'm coasting down. And I see this big church right on the right. And so I pull off and I park in this church's parking lot. And I'd had some issues with the gas gauge in my car. And so I thought that I had just the gas gauge wasn't working. Maybe I ran it out of gas. And I thought maybe that was my problem. Well, because I knew I had this potential problem, I even had a gas can in my trunk, but no gas, but I had the can. And so I just needed to get gas, right? That's what I needed. I needed gas. So I pull into this church's parking lot and I thought, surely they'll be able to help me. I had looked around. I didn't see a gas station anywhere. So I walk into this church and I say, my car broke down. I think I ran it out of gas. I've got a gas can. I've got money. I'm not asking for money or anything. I just need to know where a gas station is. And is there any way that I can get a 
ride. There were several people here in this, in this church that I'm speaking to. And this, this lady that I'm talking to at the front says, okay, well, hold on just a minute. And she goes to the back. She talks to some people and she comes back and she says, about a mile and a half down the highway, there's a gas station. It's a shell station right down there. Can't miss it if you go that way. And I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that because I didn't know where it was. But I said, is there any way I can get a ride or anything down there? And she said, oh, no, sir. It's just a mile and a half. You'll be able to see it. You'll be able to get there. I said, okay, well, thank you very much. And so I trekked the mile and a half in the heat of Houston. Uh, I think it was like July or August. It's like the worst time for that to happen. And I trekked down to the gas station. I filled the gas can up and I trekked it all the way back to my car and I put the gas in my car. And I, of course, it wasn't a gas problem. The fuel pump had gone out. And so it was a whole nother, whole nother problem. And so that whole journey didn't even help at all. And I had to get the car towed and it was a big mess. But in reflecting about that later, I thought, you know, that was an opportunity for that church. I came in there and I wasn't, I wasn't asking for anything special. I didn't, need, I didn't even need money or anything like that. I just needed somebody that maybe could give me a little bit of help to get my problem solved. And they just weren't willing to do that. At least not anything more than walk in the Houston heat for a mile and a half and you can find the gas station. And I thought, you know, in our congregations, I hope that we're more willing to help people than that. I hope we're more zealous of good works than that because God has called us to be zealous of those good works and we're gonna have opportunities that present themselves to us nearly every day if we're watching for them to help someone and to be of service to someone. And through those good works, we can help people to come to Christ and to glorify God. And so I wanna encourage you to do that because once again, the more time you spend thinking about others and how you can serve others, the less time you'll spend thinking about yourself. And finally, make evangelism a priority. And Mark 16, 15 and 16 says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. What do we see when we look at people? Do we see flesh? Do we see people that can be used to gratify our own physical desires and our own lusts of the flesh? Or do we see souls that need the blood of Jesus Christ? Do we see souls that need to be saved? Because obviously this doesn't, this doesn't change the scenario for every sin problem. But when we learn to see people as souls that need Jesus, instead of just flesh, it's really, really hard for us to then, then use those people to gratify our own sinful desires. And if we'll learn to see people through spiritual eyes, it becomes a whole lot easier to live a spiritual life and to avoid those temptations and those sins. As we close tonight, I want to read Psalm 40 and verse 12. We talked a little bit about David last night and the sins that he had committed and the things that happened as a consequence of those sins. David writes this psalm and in verse 12 he says, For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore my heart faileth me. There may be a situation in this room tonight where you feel the way that David felt where you feel that you have made so many mistakes and done so much wrong that you don't even dare look up at God. That there, those mistakes are more than the hairs of your head and that your heart has failed you and maybe you've given up hope that you can ever get past this sin and this struggle. I want to encourage you tonight to not give up hope, but to overcome that sin and do what is necessary. But the people that are successful 
in truly turning their lives around from those habitual sins are the people that are willing to put in the work, that are willing to burn the bridges to the past, to avoid the places that make it easy to sin, to run from temptation at the first moment that it's felt, that are willing to use spiritual accountability and confess their faults one to another. They're the people who are willing to spend time in God's word every day. They're the people who decide to make it a priority to come to church and to bring their family to church. They're the people who believe that fellowship with church members is important and spiritually strengthening. They're the people that are zealous of good works, that look for opportunities to serve and to help others. And they're the people that see other people as souls that need the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we're willing to apply those tools and strategies to our life, we can overcome the sin that besets us. There is hope through Jesus Christ. And we are here as a church family to help each other. And if you're here tonight and you have been struggling with sin, I want to offer you this opportunity tonight to make a decision once and for all to say, I'm done with it. I'm through with it. And I'm going to trust in Jesus and his plan through his church to get me through this and to start walking a new path tonight. And if you've never been baptized into Jesus Christ, then you need this more than anybody. You need to make the decision tonight to start that walk. Because without Jesus Christ, we cannot have hope of an eternal life in heaven. And so tonight, if the church can help you to overcome the sin that you may be facing in your life, won't you please come sit on the front pew as we stand and sing.